Hey, Dad, why are we going to the temple, and why do we have so many rules? Great questions, Kai. Do you have time for a little story? Yes, please. All right, let me tell you, man. We go to the temple because of what happened to us a long time ago. This is a long story. You ready for it? Yes. All right. Years and years ago, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather were slaves. Do you know what a slave is? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's not good. These guys had to work day after day in the worst conditions you can possibly imagine. They were beaten. Sometimes they died. They were beaten so bad. And this was, this was your great-great-grandpa, my great-grandpa. And yet, all those years, they knew this, that God had made a promise to them. And the promise that God made to them was that he was going to turn their people, their generations, into a big nation. And out of that nation, the Messiah would be born. And so, after hundreds of years, God raised up a man. You know his name. His name is Moses. And Moses was used by God to, to take us out of the slavery I mean, I, one of these days, I'll tell you all the things that happened. I mean, to tell you, one night, there were frogs everywhere. One time, there were flies everywhere. I'm telling you, it was craziness. And then finally, in the very end, the firstborn of every family died. Kai, you're my firstborn son. If you had been an Egyptian on that night, if we hadn't done what God had told us to do, you'd be dead right now. I know. But God had a plan. And God took us out of Egypt into the wilderness, and God said, I've got a land for you, and we're on our way there, Kai. We're going to live in this place that God has given us, and God is keeping his promises to us right now. So he said, I want to keep you safe. I want to make sure you're doing right. I want you to remember me all the days of your life. And so God said, when you do these things, think about me. And Kai, that's why we're going to temple. We're going to temple to remember what God has done, to think about what God has, is doing right now, and to look to the future when God completes what he's promised us he would do. Thanks, Kai. All right, man. <laughs> that wasn't hard, was it? Every dad in here can tell their son a story. Every mom in here can tell their kids a story about the old days, about what it used to be like, about things you've been through, about things that have happened in your life, about all these different things that, that you and I take for granted and yet have mystery and detail and answers to the next generation. We read a very simple passage of scripture this morning. And in reality, that passage was a more articulate expression of what we just tried to show you there. It was just a conversation. It was just a private talk between a dad and his kid, answering a question, telling the old, old stories. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Life. I'm glad you're here. We've been going through family legacy in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And today is the last time I get to speak on this topic. And today we're going to keep it really, really simple. But I promise you when you leave here today, every one of you will have a tool in your toolbox that you can use to help point the next generation to a real and living and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. It's really not complicated. It's just that simple. Tell me the old, old stories. But you know, I've brought another object lesson with me to church this morning. I want to show you today the two greatest impediments, I believe, or representative of the two greatest impediments I have, to the ability and to the effectiveness of parents discipling their kids. I believe this. I believe these are two of the greatest impediments in this generation that are preventing parents from discipling their kids. You know why? Because typically, either dad or mom or the kids, instead of walking, Instead of telling stories, instead of going on drives together, hikes together, did you see this one? Got to forward that one. Isn't that what we're doing? And if the truth be told, we're doing it in the car. We're doing it in the evening. We're doing it at dinner time. We're doing it when we run errands. We're doing it just about all the time. We've convinced ourselves that it's more interesting, more fun, more convenient to check out than to communicate, than to share. According to Common Sense Media, one of the leading data research companies on the planet, and these are recent statistics. In 2022, so these are just a few months old, the average teen in the United States, I'm sorry, the world, the world, the average teen in the world is consuming between eight, uh, 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 consuming eight hours and 39 minutes of screen time per day. Eight hours, 30 time, 39 minutes. The average tween, and that's this diabolical word that we now use to describe kids between 8 and 12. We used to just call them kids, now they're tweens. 8 years old, that's second grade, and 12 years old, that's fifth, sixth grade. And that person is consuming 5 hours and 33 minutes per day. Both those numbers are up 17%, almost 20%, 17% since 2019 Call that the COVID impact, but that's the reality. There is no indication, by the way, in the last seven years that that number is dropping, and in total, it is up 28% for teens, 20% for tweens since 2015. In other words, the problem's not getting better, it's getting worse. Boys watch more than girls. Minorities watch more than white kids. Middle class watches the most 
followed by kids that are in the lower socioeconomic status, and then finally, the upper socioeconomic status for teenagers. Among tweens, it is lowest to highest in terms of amount watched. So the highest uh, socioeconomic status watches the least, the lowest watches the most. But in the, the teenager years, it is the middle class kids that are watching the most. The data of some, on some time, of the time kids are spending with their parents is unreliable. And, and what I can find is a little bit vague and all over the place. But here's my best summary of what I found. The range that kids spend talking with their parents measured as something meaningful, is somewhere between seven minutes per day. And if they're talking about just anything and they're in the general presence of their parents, may not even communicating, but they're like within the ability to, to have a conversation if they wanted to, a maximum of two hours per day. So somewhere between seven minutes and two hours a day compared to five and seven and a half hours. By just about every survey I can find, the average child in this country is spending far more time consuming just YouTube and TikTok videos than they are being in just the same room with their parents. Not talking, just being in the same room. And they're spending far more time watching or listening to just the ads on TikTok and YouTube than they are in actually conversing with their parents. So we've been studying Deuteronomy 6, which is a sermon by Moses on the responsibility and mission that the parents of the nation of Israel had to leave a legacy with the children of God's hand, regarding the children of God's hand and, and mission and why God called them and, and the purpose they had and, and the plan he had for their people. It's an outline for the intergenerational transfer of history and tradition and culture, and values, and beliefs of the nation of families that was Israel. Its foundation was built on their love for and obedience to God. And they were called and commanded to see that it was ingrained on each succeeding generation, lest they lose sight of all that God had done for them, prepared for them, and promised to them. Today, we're reaching this conclusion of the sermon when Moses is laying out a very important part of leaving a legacy behind for the next generation. And in these verses, Moses emphasizes the art of storytelling and the importance of history. Now, if there are two things that I love, it's history and it's storytelling. I'm going to tell you, these, this is my wheelhouse. I, I enjoy it. One of my teaching degrees is in, in history, and I won awards in high school, uh, nationally even, as a storyteller. I used to enter competitions on storytelling. The reality is I probably would never have been a teacher, nor would I have ever become a pastor if I did not have these two particular passions because they gave for me a fascination with communicating things of importance through common illustrations and verbal techniques. When I was growing up, I cannot tell you how hearing the story of my own family journey impacted me and my development and my values over the course of my lifetime. For the last 10 years or so, I've tried to make it a 
project of mine to find out where I came from and what my DNA tells me about me, myself and my history. And I did the old, uh, you know, spit in the tube thing and find out your family history because we have a couple of adoptions and things going on in my family where I couldn't be real sure. And I discovered I had family on the Mayflower. We go that far back. I also found out that I'm so white, you should call me Dr. Whitey McWhitey Pants. <laughs> my family came from Scotland and, and Northern uh, England, Wales, that area. A uh, little tiny bit of French and uh, a little bitty tiny bit of German, um, which again reinforces um, my pallor. Uh, but I did find something recent. I got an update over Christmas holidays and they found less than 1% from somewhere in Western Africa. So I do, I do have some brother in me. I'm pretty excited about that. And there is something interesting in my, in my blood somewhere. And so I'm, I'm pretty cool with that. But, but the reality is, even in a rather bland racial history, I also found out that I had at least five relatives who were pastors in previous generations. I found out that that little tiny part of the French was French Huguenot, and they moved to England because of the persecution that they were getting in their homeland. I found out all kinds of important information, but by the way, that wasn't the most important information because the most important information I got, I had gotten with my father. When we would drive to my grandfather's farm or walk to my grandfather's farm, that was just one mile away from my house. And sometimes then we would go over to my great-grandfather's house, which was only one mile away from his house. Or whenever we would go visit my aunts and my uncles or my grandparents or my great-grandparents, and I would hear them tell how my great-grandfather -grand got married. And when he got married, Married, and they were so poor because it was the, the, uh, the Great uh, Depression. They were so poor they couldn't even go on a honeymoon. And they only had two people there. They had my grandfather's parents because they were too embarrassed to have my grandmother's parents come to the wedding. They were that poor. So they had this little ceremony. And then they went to, of all things, my grandmother's mother and father's house. And they were farmers. And they lived in a four-room house. And by the way, at five o'clock the next morning, the morning after they got married, the morning after their wedding night, my great-grandfather knocked on the door of my grandfather and said, my grandfather's name was Waldo, Waldo, get up, the cows need milking. That's the kind of stock I'm from. You don't put the cows off, you do your job. Wedding night, doesn't matter. You're at where you're supposed to be. Those kind of stories and a thousand others my parents would tell me while we were driving to town because we lived in the country, while we were cutting firewood because we had a wood-burning fireplace and a, and a furnace. And, and whenever we were working on machinery or whenever we were walking to go check on the cattle or whenever we were working in the garden or whether we were painting a fence, during those times, our ears were filled not with noise, but with history. By the way, I heard the story of my dad who grew up in the home of somebody that only went to church on Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. I heard the stories of how he had grown up in a harsh and hard environment where cursing was an art form and where putting each other down was something that just you did. And then my dad's uncle, who was near his age and very close, dropped dead of a heart attack. 
And at 20 years of age, my dad's wondering, what in the world? How can somebody so young die? What happens after we die? What if I die of a heart attack? Where am I going when I die? Is there any place else to go? Why am I here? Where did I come from? And these questions were flooding him. So he went down to the Disciples of Christ Church. And the pastor said, oh, you don't need to worry about those things. Just join the church and you'll be fine. So dad joined the church and knew there was nothing different in his life. So having conflict with my grandfather, he got in a car, he drove to Detroit, Michigan. He moved in with his grandmother and got a job at a service station back in the days when they did full service work. And one night, a guy by the name of Roy Humble was working with him, who was just a few years older than him, said, Mel, what happens when you die? And my dad said, I have absolutely no clue, but I sure have been wondering. And that guy began telling him for the next several nights what it meant to have a personal relationship with Christ. And my dad went home to his grandmother's house in Detroit, Michigan, and dropped out of his bed onto his knees one night at about 2 o'clock in the morning and prayed and repented of his sins and trusted Christ as his Savior. He moved back to Moberly, met a girl by the name of Sharon. Got married about six months later, ten months later, here comes Dan, and now Dan's talking to you. Now that may not be a particularly interesting story to you, but it sure is to me. Because you know what I hear when I hear that story? God had a plan for me that stretches back generations. God was intent on plucking me out of what could have been poverty, what could have been a life spent with, with uh, anger and, and all kinds of things, a, a, a life spent in a completely different way than mine turned out. But God has a plan for my life. Why? I know the old, old story. And I'm thankful that my dad, who was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, did tell me where I came from and what God had done in his life, believing that God had something he wanted to do in my life as well. And folks, that's the power of transferring your spiritual story to the next generation. And I want to urge every person in this room to do that. This, as the sermon is closing, one of the final illustrations that Moses gave, he said, someday you're going to be walking to the temple. And your son is going to be, hey, dad, why are we going to the temple? What's with all of these rules? What's that all about? And you're going to have a moment where you could say, ah, don't worry about it. Just listen to the priest. Or you could say, ah, ask me some other time. I'm thinking about some stuff right now. Or you could say, hey, I'm listening to this really important podcast right now. Why don't you pop open your iPad and take a look at some TikTok? Or you can say, hey, good question. You got time for a story. There's something about the power of a story that we cannot neglect. Stories, testimonies, recounting, sharing is how generations have successfully passed their values to new generations over the millennia. And I believe that's what God wants us to remember from this passage this morning. Because he literally showed us how. He literally said, your kid's going to ask you a question, and when he does, here's what you do. So may I do that this morning by giving you five keys to sharing legacy stories? Here's the first one. Answer questions. The first key 
to transferring your spiritual journey, your key family values, your biblical worldview, and your legacy stories is to simply answer questions. Here's what the Bible says. When your son asks you. By the way, notice something. It didn't say if your son asks you. And you know why it didn't say if your son asks you? Because kids ask questions. It's not, a, it's not a matter of if they're going to do it. It's a matter of when they're going to do it. But sometimes what we do is we block it out of our minds for reasons that we rationalize but are no good. And in doing so, we lose those golden moments to be able to transfer important information. When I was in teacher's college, they used to say this, the active mind is the questioning mind. You need to teach your kids to be asking questions as they consume information. And this is a skill set that I'm afraid our current generation is falling prey to a world that does not want to teach them the answers to the questions, but wants to indoctrinate them to a system that is the antithesis of biblical values and history, and character, and the training that ought to be coming generationally. So there's two things that's got to happen. You got to distract them. Well, we're doing a really good job with that. And then secondly, we can't be available. And one of the reasons we're not available is because we're distracted. And folks, answering questions is absolutely essential in education, and it's absolutely essential in parenting. It's known as the Socratic method of teaching, in which a shared dialogue between a teacher and a student by posing questions back and forth and discussing them is a way to reach learning and to reach knowledge. By the way, whenever your kid is in the car with you, you say, they don't ask me anything. Well, if they're unplugged, there's a better chance, but they may not be because you've never taught them to be questioning. So ask the questions for them or ask them questions. Ask them questions like, have you ever wondered why we go to church every Sunday morning? Have you ever wondered why other kids do this, but I don't let you do that? Have you ever wondered where we got this beautiful spring weather and what God's doing in the middle of that? Have you ever wondered why the trees bloom? Have you ever wondered why the flowers come out when the sun grows, grows warmer? Have you ever, and just start asking these questions. You are teaching them literally to think beyond the surface level. It's called higher order thinking skills. And it's a part of teaching that you teach your, your kids, your students to ask these questions. One other thing you can do is ask them questions. And when you do that, hey, what'd you do today? Nothing. That's not a good answer, all right? You literally did nothing. You just sat and you just didn't move. You didn't look at anything. You never talked to anybody. You just did nothing, right? Well, no, I did something. Well, great, let's talk about that something. Now, by the way, you say this conversation feels hard. It feels awkward. It feels uncomfortable. It feels unproductive. That's okay. You're teaching a skill. It doesn't happen just like that. And by the way, the great conversations that you'll have will sometimes sneak upon you and they will, they will pounce on you. You will not see them coming. You will not be able to create them in the future. But the moment they start, you know you're at a special time and you need to drop everything and hone in on it. These are rare moments. Value them. When they ask you the tough question, it might be when a classmate has a tragedy. It might be when you find out that somebody in your family that you love very much has cancer. It might be when something big happens in our world. 
Do not assume because they're silent that they're not aware. Do not assume because they're not asking questions that they don't have questions. Do not assume that the absence of engagement is a lack of interest on their part. They may just need for you to prepare the road for them. But as long as we got these in our ears and this in front of our face, the conversations are not going to occur. What does that mean? I think we all know. I think we all know. I don't think there's very many people in this room, if any, that will not admit to the fact that we all, hand up, right here, you're looking at him, big hypocrite going on right here, that we're spending too much time on devices and not enough time in conversation with those that we love. And maybe it's time we started putting an action plan together that limits that. How about this one for starters? We're gonna eat at least five meals together per week, five. Five out of 21, that's not a lot. But we're gonna do five meals together and nobody's gonna have an electronic device on the table while we're eating. Oh, that means you can't eat in front of the TV, by the way. That means you actually have to be around the table. You say, well, we eat out a lot. Great. There's this wonderful thing called a paper bag and plastic plates. Take your food that you've gotten at the, at the Dairy Queen or wherever it is you go. Dairy Queen? Who eats at Dairy Queen? Uh, <laughs> you know, at the Chick-fil-A, right? We're Christians. At the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> bring it home. Put it on the f- table. It's good if you put a paper plate or a napkin under it. But if not, just put it on the table and take 30 minutes. Say, well, I don't know what I'd do. It makes me nervous. I've literally had people tell me that. Well, just sit there and blink at each other. Eventually, I promise you, you'll come up with something. But that's just a start. That's just a starting point. Let me give you some others. Number two, tell your stories. Tell your stories. It says, when your son asks you, then notice the next directive that's in there. It is, say to your son. Who doesn't like a good story? Jesus frequently used parables during his earthly ministry. Over and over and over again, we see the stories. This is what we do when we go to Sunday school, when we go to kid life, when we go to Awanas, when we go to trail life. What is a lot of the use? What, what, what do they do when they're teaching children? They're telling them stories. Story of David, the story of Joshua, the story of Gideon, the story of Noah, story of Adam and Eve, the story of Jesus at the, uh, at, at the temple, story of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. We know the story of Paul as he confronted Agrippa. We know all these stories... Why? Because the stories teach the information and the content that leads to the transfer of the values. It's a part of the process and it's a beautiful thing. So be willing to tell your story. Say, well, I grew up bored. I had a boring life. You did not. Stop it. You did stupid things when you were young. Those are now your teachable moments. People did mean things to you. You were bullied or you were a bully. Stories everywhere for that. Did you ever go on vacation? Did you ever play sports? Did you ever take a drive? Did you ever do anything with your dad? Did your dad ever disappoint you? Did your dad ever spank you when you didn't deserve it? Did you ever get away with something and you should have been spanked? And did you, all of those are stories. There's a billion stories. Share them, tell them, think about them, plan for it, and give it to the next generation. Why? Because those are the connections on which the bridges are built to be able to transfer life information, eternal values in the word of God. So the children of Israel had gone through 400 years of absolute agony. And God said, don't let them forget. 
they don't have to go through slavery like this. They'll have their own issues. They're going to talk about walking around the wilderness for 40 years, not knowing where they were going to go. But you had 400 years of slavery where you could literally feel the, 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 the crack of the whip on your back. You saw the bruises your dad had when he came home. You would see your mom cry as she put salve on, her dad, on your dad's back. You remember those stories. You remember how fearful you felt whenever they would come through the streets looking for someone. You knew what that felt like. And then you remember the miracles. You remember how it turned dark in the middle of the day. You remembered the flies and the frogs. You remembered when all the cattle died. And you remember the night that dad said, we're gonna kill a lamb here and we're gonna take the blood and put it over the doorways. And tonight you better listen up carefully because there's something big that's gonna happen. And you could hear the wails from the Egyptian side of our city as people woke up and found their firstborn dead. And you could hear them screaming. And you remember the next day when they said, get your stuff, we're leaving. Just grab what you can, we're leaving. And you remember going across the wilderness, you remember coming up to the, to, to, to the Red Sea and you could see the soldiers coming and the sea before us, what are we gonna do? You remember when Moses took his rod and put it over the water and the water parted and we ran through? Do you remember that, son? Man, was that not amazing? And you remember how when we got over on the other side, we looked back and they were still coming, we're, what are we gonna do? And all of a sudden the water came in and drowned the whole Egyptian army. Remember when we were thirsty and Moses hit the rock and the water came out? You remember when we were so hungry and the birds came and just dropped out of the sky and we had quail? And when in the morning we would get up and we could take out these buckets and we would get the bread for the day. We called it manna. Remember that? Do you remember all these times when you would look out and say, where do we go today? And there'd be a big pillar of cloud. And at night we'd see a big pillar of fire and it reminded us that God was with us. Do you remember these things, son? Kind of exciting, isn't it? That's storytelling. That's storytelling. And ours may not be quite that dramatic, but it could be that you're telling the story of how when you were a little boy, your mom would take you to Sunday school and you didn't want to go. And I don't like going to Sunday school and that teacher's too long and that pastor is really long. Why are we doing this every week? All my other kids are out in the yard and they're playing. But here's why my mom said that. And you know what? At the time I didn't like it and I didn't appreciate it. And she made me memorize memory verses as well. And we would have to learn them in the car on the way to church. And if we didn't, uh, my mom would lose her mind and she would get in there. But then, you know, one time I won the award for saying the most memory verses. And I got to go into this line right outside of this thing called Kid Life. And I got to trade in my tickets for a gift card. But you know what I did? I put that gift card in the offering plate because I wanted to help the people at Alongside Families. And that was my gift for the month. And you tell that story in 20, 25, 30, 35 years to your kids, and it's going to make a difference in their life. Oh, it doesn't have to be dramatic to be interesting. It doesn't have to be fantastic to be helpful. So sometimes we just tell the story. The number three is visiting memorials. Visiting memorials. Over 30 times in scripture, we find the word memorial. These were sacred locations where God had revealed himself in a special or unique way. Bethel is where Jacob memorialized his vision. Gilgal is where Joshua built a memorial celebrating the Israelite entrance into the promised land. Samuel raised an Ebenezer. You ever sing that song? Here I raise my Ebenezer, and we do not know what it means, right? <laughs> I think I was like 50 before I finally looked it up to figure what it was. I, I, when I was raising my Ebenezer, this is what I thought I was supposed to have. I'm Ebenezer. Here it is. Here's my Ebenezer. But no, an Ebenezer is just a monument. It's just a monument. And 
And, and, and you know, we miss the hymns, don't we? Sometimes we don't even understand the hymns. But uh, this is when God thwarted an attack by the Philistines on, on Israel. And so Samuel built the memorial called an Ebenezer. The Ark of the Covenant was a type of memorial, by the way, that bore Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna, all of which were significant. Memorials are important. I love visiting memorials. Julie and I recently went to Camp Lejeune to tell our son goodbye before he deployed. And while we were there, we just stopped by the Marine Memorials with him, and he explained a lot of what was going on. We found the name of my, my cousin who had been killed in Vietnam on the wall there for the Marines who had died in the Vietnam conflict. And then as we were walking by, an old gentleman wearing a big old vest with several patches and ribbons on it stopped us and said, how do I work this thing? How do I, how do I? And we stopped and took some time and tried to help him find the name of a comrade of his that had been killed in Vietnam. And he told us the story like it had just happened yesterday, not 40 years ago. And I'll probably remember that hour we spent there for the rest of my life because of the story I heard that day from an old grizzled Marine who could barely walk. Visiting memorials can be an important place. You say, well, what makes a memorial? A memorial is a place that is set apart for a special reason to help us recall important truths. That's all it is. You can make a memorial anywhere. You can turn a place into a memorial. This is the place. This is the place where God changed my life. I was in Moberly not long ago. That's my hometown where I grew up. I haven't lived there in 40 some odd years. But almost every time, and this time was no exception, I drove by the old church that I attended when I was a kid that my dad literally started with my mom in the living room of our home. I can take you in that church to one of the beams where when I was 12 years old, we were building that church. My dad had given me this big assignment of hammering the nails in along the beam for the wood planking that was on the roof. And I missed the line. And to this day, there is one nail that sticks straight out. The nail of shame. <laughs> but it's a little bit of a memorial for me because I remember as a 12-year-old kid with a hammer doing something my dad believed in. And I didn't believe the way that he believed in it because I was only 12. I didn't know how to believe that deep. But my dad was literally pouring his entire life's work into having a place where he could take his family to worship. So, you know, every time my family hasn't gone to that church in 40 years. But every time I drive through town, I go by that church and I remember. I remember the things that happened to me there. I remember the decisions I made in terms of my own spiritual development right at that place. It doesn't mean anything like that to anybody that goes to church there now. But it means something to me. And by the way, I've taken every one of my kids by there over the years and told them my stories that took place in that church. Memorial's important, number four, establishing traditions. Traditions are scheduled and repeatable and have purpose and intention. Passover, for the people in this verse, these verses, was both a memorial and a tradition, as is something we're about ready to do in just a few moments, and that is observe communion. These are important because they cause us to stop and intentionally change our actions for just a few moments as we observe the tradition. 
They can be going to special places. They can be repeating certain rituals. They can be observing certain events. They can be marking special occasions. But the establishment of tradition is important. It can be a rite of passage. It can be a celebration of accomplishment. That's why we celebrate birthdays. That's why we remember anniversaries. They can be acts of appreciation. They can be acts of gratitude. And four, the guy who walked with his son down the temple. This tradition of going every Saturday to temple. Walking a certain number of steps, but not more than that. Not eat, not cooking that day. Mom didn't cook that day. Telling the story, sacrificing the animals, listening to the priest. All of those things to him were a part of the spiritual legacy that had been assigned to the nation of Israel. And it was going to be a priority. This ritual took precedence over other things in their life that they may have wanted to do, but did not do because the message and the remembering were more important than the pleasure of doing something else. You say, that sounds legalistic. No, it sounds principled. There's lots of other time to do the pleasurable things. There ought to be some moments that we set aside for the important. Establishing tradition, whether it's a tradition of attending church, or it's a tradition of reading the Bible story on Christmas Eve, or whether it is taking your kid out to breakfast on their birthday and talking about their own spiritual journey, or maybe taking them on a rite of passage when they turn 13 and saying during this time, we're going to spend a week together, we're going to have a lot of fun, but we're going to have five important conversations, and here's what they are. It is these kind of traditions that you set in your family that help build the legacy for the next generation. Again, it isn't difficult, it just requires planning, and it requires priority, and it requires principle. The last thing is this, creating experiences. Sometimes we're creating experiences and we don't even know it because they happen spontaneous, spontaneously. Some of the most vivid things that I remember in my life, the experiences were things that we did not plan for and sometimes we didn't want to happen again. I remember the morning that we almost had a car wreck on the way going to church. And I can remember my, my dad saying, kids, do you realize at this point how, how, how quickly life can end and we don't even think about it. And he used that moment as we're all still shaking with the trauma of what almost happened that didn't. And dad's teaching us a spiritual lesson in that moment of that experience that wasn't necessarily a positive experience. Other times it was vacations. I remember visiting churches when we were on vacation. We still tell the stories about some funny things that happened. And you know, the funny things that happened are not changing my life spiritually, but they do connect me to the fact that my parents were so disciplined about making sure that we were in church that even when we were on vacation, we went to church. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm simply saying that that left a mark on me for good. What are you doing in your life with your schedule that allows you to leave a mark spiritually on the next generation? It can be something as simple as a walk after dinner, family night where you play table games. They can be spontaneous. They can be thoughtfully planned. They almost always represent a break from the routine or the seizure of a specific moment, reclaiming times that might otherwise be missed or forgotten or wasted or ignored 
or filled with emptiness. If you go to our app website, there are 10 more points I'm not going to get to. Surprise. (laughs) But I want you to just, if you don't get anything, this has not been a deep message. This has not been a complicated message. This has been a very, very simple message. Who has God called you to walk with in your life? Did he call you dad? Uncle? Grandma? Neighbor? Kid life teacher? Student life small group leader? Who has God called you that you're walking with? When's the last time you told him a story? The story of how much God loves you and God loves them. The story of hope for tomorrow, security for today, meaning to the past. You do not have to be college educated. You do not have to be a pastor. You do not need to be ordained. All you got to be is willing to share the story of what God is doing in your life. And this is what Moses told his people to do. Remember. Recall, share, repeat, continue. It's a simple formula that every person in this room can do.